Listening to the Bellator Christie podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Picking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host as we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas, yours truly, Brian Chilton. Uh, we want to remind you that the Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com. We do encourage you to go to the website and click subscribe, uh, and by doing so, you'll receive all the articles and uh, links to the podcast in your inbox absolutely free. And we do encourage you to also uh, go check us out uh, as we are on iTunes, TuneIn Radio app, as well as Stitcher. Uh, Go and you can subscribe to those channels, and by doing that, you'll catch all of the podcasts as they become available. And speaking of podcasts, we have a wonderful one for you today. We have back with us Ted Wright. Uh, Mr. Wright is no stranger to the Bellator Christie podcast. Ted is a freelance teacher, writer, researcher, and founder of EpicArchaeology.org. For over a decade, Ted has been a speaker on Christian apologetics as well as biblical archaeology across North America and internationally. In addition to public speaking, Ted was the former executive and teaching director of CrossExamine.org. Ted has also appeared on numerous television and radio programs, including the History Channel's TV miniseries, Mankind, the Story of All of Us, as well as CNN's recent documentary on the historical resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Fact Faith Forgery. In addition, Ted has served as adjunct professor of apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary, as well as Charlotte Bible College and Seminary, where he has taught for over a decade. Ted has a B.A. in Anthropology and Archaeology from the Cobb Institute of Archaeology at Mississippi State University. As an undergraduate, Ted worked as a research lab assistant on Phase 3, 1992-1999, of the Lahav Research Project from Tel Halif, organized by Dr. Joe D. Seeger of the Cobb Institute and assisted by W.F. Albright, Institute of Archaeological Research in Nelson, uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, Gluick uh, School of Biblical Archaeology, and I probably just massacred his name. Uh, also, uh, from the Joe Alon uh, Center for Regional and Folklore Studies at Kibbutz Lahav. Dev has an MA in uh, Christian Apologetics with a concentration in philosophy from Southern Evangelical Seminary, where he served as graduate research assistant 
Dr. Norman Geisler. Ted participated in the tw- uh, 2014 excavation at Kirbet al Makatir, uh, biblical city of Ai, with uh, ABR Associate for Biblical Research, where he is professional uh, is a professional associate and researcher. In his free time, Ted enjoys riding, mountain biking, kayaking, and outdoors activities. And so it is a joy and privilege to welcome to the Bellator Christie Podcast, or should I say back to the Bellator Christie Podcast, Mr. Ted Wright. Ted, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. That was a mouthful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> I hope I, I, I got uh, most of the names at least somewhere in the ballpark of being correct. <laughs> Yes. Glick. <laughs> I just realized not long ago that uh, that uh, Douglas Grutis, I had been mispronouncing his name and uh, for, for a while as well. But uh, here we are at the Easter season, and uh, uh, we, we were talking about some of your projects, especially your newest project, uh, epicarchaeology.org, which by the time our podcast launches will be uh one day after its official launch on Easter Sunday. Uh, tell us a little bit about epicarchaeology.org. Yes, uh, thank you so much, Brian. Uh, I have been wanting to do this for quite some time now. Um, you know, there, you know, a lot of people are aware there's a lot of apologetics ministries out there, and um, there's very few, if not, I think I can just count maybe one hand, uh, just a couple of fingers uh, for websites that are dedicated specifically to archaeology in the Bible. And, um, you know, uh, there's good things in those, and there's things that are, you know, not so great, and maybe it's sometimes they're a little bit uh, confusing. So what I wanted to do, my vision was to have a website uh, where people could go. If, like, for instance, if you have a question on what is the archaeological evidence for, say, uh, the Exodus, or what's the evidence for the period of the Judges, um, Epic Archaeology is going to have a research section in which you can go as a Christian if you're reading through your Bible and you want to go find out what is the archaeological evidence for this or that uh, event, you can do it very easily on our website. And so we're very excited about this. It's going to be obviously launching on uh, Easter Sunday, which by the time this broadcast uh, will be live. So I encourage people to check it out. It's www.epicarchaeology.org. And uh, our plans are, Brian, and, and not to compete with you, brother, but uh, we're also uh, wanting to have a podcast. And, and, and the other thing, too, is there's not, not a lot of podcasts on, on biblical archaeology. And so uh, we're going to be calling it Monocle and Spade and uh, kind of sort of a hat, uh, hat tip to the uh, old archaeology of long ago, you know, when people wore, wore the pith helmets, things like that. So it'll be fun. And we're going to be launching that. I'll probably uh, launch later this summer. But uh, the main thing is going to be the website, and we're very excited about that. And so I'd encourage people to check it out, and we're going to be having a special uh, article uh, posted on the resurrection. So uh, some of the things we talk about today, uh, we're going to be having uh, in further, you know, further detail uh, on the website. So, uh, so thanks so much for uh, allowing me to tell about that. Absolutely. And uh, you know, here it is, Easter time, and and um, it seems like every year around Easter, we're confronted by. Uh, individuals uh, or TV programs that uh, that seek to discredit the resurrection event, but there's actually a lot of several good reasons for believing the historicity uh, of the resurrection of Jesus. And today we want to talk about uh, two recent discoveries uh, or excavate well, well discoveries we should say 
uh, pertaining to the the resurrection of Jesus. And the first we want to discuss, uh, the first thing we want to discuss today is the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, this is held to be the burial place of Jesus. So, Ted, as we begin, what evidence do we have that suggests that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the actual location of Jesus' tomb? Yeah, it's a great question, Brian. Thank you so much. And let me just start by saying that, um, you know, this is a, even among uh, evangelical conservative uh, scholars, this could be, you know, kind of, kind of a little bit of a controversial thing, although I think most conservatives would agree. And, uh, and I'll, I'll say this as well, okay, it's kind of a preface to, to the answer. You know, a lot of believers, a lot of Christians and, and uh, people who go to Israel and they go to Jerusalem and they, they go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and they see all of the, you know, all of the oil lamps and all the incense, things like that, and, and the, the elaborate uh, architecture of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Then they go to the Garden Tomb and they have more of a, more of a kind of a personal, very calming, spiritual uh, experience in the Garden Tomb. So people usually leave. Uh, have to thinking that, well, I think the garden tomb, I, I have more uh, evidence that that is the traditional site. But, but archaeologically, historically, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre actually is, it probably holds much more weight archaeologically and historically that it's the actual site of the tomb of Christ. Um, so the Gospel records it, tells us that Golgotha, which is the place where Jesus crucified, uh, obviously means place of the skull. This is in Matthew 27, Mark 15, uh, verse 22, John chapter 19, verse 17, Luke chapter 23. And uh, we are told in the Gospels that Golgotha uh, was located outside but near the city walls of Jerusalem at that time. Uh, the reference there is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, and it was also near a main road. Uh, the reference for that is Mark chapter 15. So also Golgotha was located in, in, a, in a garden. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 41, uh, where a new tomb had been made. So it's very important, Brian, that we, we emphasize the fact that it was a new tomb. And, of course, if you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, uh, you know, who, who did Jesus? And obviously he didn't have a tomb, but there was a Pharisee at the time, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who had a freshly cut tomb. And so the question is, um, does the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, does it fit these requirements? And the answer is yes, it does, actually. The site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre um, answers all of those requirements uh, perfectly. Now, obviously, it doesn't prove it necessarily, but it certainly meets those requirements, so that would be a, certainly a very important component to identifying the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, although today, you know, when you go to Jerusalem, it, it is located inside the city walls of the old city, but that was not the case in the first century. In the first century, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was outside the city walls of the first century. This would have been a time that archaeologists call the Second Temple Period. And so um, so this would have been uh, situated uh, north of the first wall and west of the second wall. So uh, today, well, not today, but recently in the past you know, a century or so, uh, substantial remains of the first wall have been found in the citadel in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. So uh, in these latter excavations, the remains of the Garden Gate in the beginning of what is believed to be the second wall have been found. And this is where Josephus describes them as as actually being located. And this is in his uh, 
uh, you know, his uh, wars, his one of his writings. So, so these things really indicate that uh, it really seems to place the crosshairs of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as the as the actual legitimate site uh, where the tomb was located. Wow. Now, I understand, uh, I think National Geographic had a special on this. Uh, recently, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre underwent some repairs. What exactly was done to to the church as far as the repair work went? Yes. Well, uh, to answer that question, Brian, we need to kind of go back a little bit and uh, give a, history, a little bit of the history of the actual structure itself. So in... In around 13, uh, 313 A.D., uh, and people may remember this from their history lessons, maybe not, but uh, the Emperor Constantine the Great uh, published published the Edict of Milan, which allowed Christianity um, as uh, one of the accepted religions, of course. And uh, you know, it was you know to, to say that Christians shouldn't be persecuted any longer. Uh, Ten years after that, his mother, Queen Helena, uh, visited Jerusalem, and the story is told that she discovers the cross of Jesus. Now, we can't substantiate that, but um, so in, in, she, in her researches and in her explorations, I think Eusebius even tells us, uh, and actually he's the one who did the research, uh, I think Constantine relied on him and Helena, to actually, the church story Eusebius, by the way, uh, to actually locate this. So there would have been a memory of this. And so in 325 AD, Constantine ordered the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to be built, that was over a temple that had been built by the Roman Emperor Hadrian. Now Hadrian had built a temple, temple of Aphrodite, over that spot. And so it's interesting that the local people who lived in Jerusalem, um, you know, during that time would have known that because obviously the Romans did not want to have any kind of uh, uh, trace of any kind of Christian or Jewish, um, you know, uh, presence on the site. So Hadrian built a temple over Aphrodite. So what, what he did was. He inadvertently actually protected the site, and, and people know that that's you know, hey, this is the site. So, so, uh, so this is where tradition and where, where oral tradition and where um, the people of the fourth century uh, remembered the site to be. So, so the, to answer your question, you know, you're asking the original question was, um, you know, what was the repairs that were being done? Well, in that uh, in that actual structure, Constantine uh, built a church or a little small chapel over the actual site, and that chapel had to be rebuilt. I think during I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say it was around. So keep in mind, this was in 325, in which the original structure was built. And then later, I want to say during the time of maybe the Muslim conquest in around the six six hundreds or maybe even eight hundreds AD, uh, that structure was destroyed. And then rebuilt again, and so that structure is what is actually exists today under a, a, another structure that was built in the 13th century. So you have it's sort of like a uh, Brian. I don't know if you remember the old Russian nesting dolls. You know where you have a, you, you open up one doll and there's another doll inside, which is kind of they just kind of keep going. You know. Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of kind of the way it is with cryptology. So you have to peel back the layers. So. If you visit today, it, it's, it's kind of hard on the, on a podcast to, to visualize this. If we had a, if I had a, you know, PowerPoint, I could show people what I'm talking about. They can look it up online. But so, if you actually go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, the structure itself, there's a dome over that building, and in that building is where, in the, in the 19th century, or excuse me, in the early 20th century, the, the uh, um, British actually had a steel structure uh, that was actually encased that original. 
uh, structure that was uh, repaired in around the six or six or eight hundreds AD because they were uh, worried it was going to collapse. So they literally surrounded it with uh, with steel. And so this recent repair, Brian, was they basically removed the steel structure and they reinforced the actual structure itself with titanium rods and connecting bolts. And uh, they cleaned the outside. So, so for, you know, probably 600 years or so, uh, the outside of that thing, there's all kinds of candles and oil lamps and, and you know, smoke and things like that. And so there's a stone would have been covered with all kinds of uh, uh, grease and stuff like that. So they cleaned the outside of it. And then they removed in the inner actual, the inner little chapel itself, they actually took the uh, covering off of the original uh, spot where they believe the, the tomb was located. And they actually, this, the, the place where Jesus' body lay, they could actually see it. And I think uh, that there were actually some, there were some graffiti as well uh, of crosses inside of it. So that further... Um, uh, confirms that this is a, this site has a very uh, a great memory going back uh, to the earliest days of Christianity, and so obviously uh, Jesus' followers would have remembered this because this was the spot where it all began. I remember Brian just to kind of add a personal note. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, well, in 2014, I was actually there, my first time visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you know, you're, you're as soon as you walk in the door, you're overwhelmed with, uh, you know, you, there's actually three uh, Catholic. Um, uh, orders that actually uh, oversee. Now, this kind of gets into another rabbit trail story, but basically the Catholics um, back in about the 1300s had appointed the Franciscans, the Pope appointed the Franciscans as to be the ones to oversee all the holy sites in the Holy Land. And But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, because it was so sacred, um, the other Catholic orders wanted to take part in actually overseeing it. So so today, there are three orders that take care that, that are custodians, if you will, of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Franciscans, the uh, Greek Orthodox, and I believe the Armenian Orthodox. So there are three chapels and three, so you're overwhelmed with incense and singing and chapels and all this stuff. And, and so some people, you know, a lot of Americans and a lot of Westerners are a little bit overwhelmed by all the sights and sounds of it. But if you think about it, this is the spot, Brian, where the world changed forever. I mean, that if if Christianity is true and Jesus really is risen from the dead, this is the whole one of the holiest spots on the entire earth, and uh, all all the evidence archaeologically really certain certainly seems to point to that spot as being the legitimate uh, spot. Yeah, I, I, I understand that, uh, and I have a little bit of feedback. I apologize for that, but uh, I understand that they that they. Uh, that they found something. I, I didn't get a chance to watch the National Ge Geographic presentation of this, but I understand that some, some of the archaeologists were amazed at some of the bedrock. Uh, was it the graffiti that they found that amazed them so, or was there something else uh, in the bedding that really just really astonished them as to uh, the probability lying to the fact that this could very well be the burial place of Jesus? say it was uh they were surprised to see that the site had been unchanged that it basically confirmed to what they had thought originally it was certainly archaeologically we know that it was a uh we know that it was a tomb i mean it was located outside the city walls and it was a tomb it was a what happened was is brian the um the way that in the, what's called second second temple judaism 
mm-hmm. the way that uh, Jews were, you know, would dispose of uh, a dead body, well, not dispose of, but rather have the way that they would embalm or take care of it. They would obviously uh, lay it in this uh, tomb, and they would embalm it. But of course, Jesus was uh, was crucified on Friday, so he would have been, and he was right near sundown. So they had to uh, was very uh, hastily buried. He was wrapped in burial cloths. And he was placed in this tomb, but it, you know, had he, you know, had he not risen from the dead, or you know, any other typical like Jew of the day, they would have been uh, obviously uh, wrapped, and uh, spices and embalming things would have been placed in the body, and then the body would have, would have lain in the tomb in a in a dish for about a year or so. The family would go back into the uh, into the tomb, and they would gather the bones. And then they would place them in something we call an ossuary, or uh, it's really just a bone box. But some of these would be elaborately carved. Uh, they would be made out of typically limestone, and uh, they would have sometimes the name inscribed outside the name of it. One of the most remarkable discoveries happened back in uh, back in 1990, and that was the discovery of the Caiaphas ossuary. Uh, it was the box literally containing the bones of Caiaphas. This is the high priest. Uh, who presided over the trial of Jesus, and so, um, so his bones. There, there were other bones as well that were in there, and uh, the the provenance or the context of this discovery of the Caiaphas ossuary uh, certainly points to it as being the legitimate one. So, um, obviously, when Jesus was buried, he was buried rapidly and just uh, very hastily because the, on this, you know Sunday morning, women were going to come back and they were going to uh, embalm the body for that process. But obviously. Uh, they were confounded because the body was missing, and um, so so to go back to the original question, Brian, uh, the the bone, the actual site itself, when the archaeologists just recently and one of the researchers uh, uncovered it, um, there was some damage that was done, uh, I believe, uh, during the Muslim period uh, for the site, but it still it still held its original uh, pre original structure uh, from when they believe it was a actual. Uh, tomb itself, and it was a freshly cut tomb. And by the way, another another uh, little sidebar on that. A side note: um, we were talking earlier, Brian, about the garden tomb, and uh, you know, in 1883, uh, one of the early explorer archaeologists slash geographers, the guy by the name of General Charles Gordon, he argued he argued that the real Golgotha and the real tomb was located just north of the old city of Jerusalem uh, in the garden tomb. And so, uh, why why do we reject that? Why what's the one of the main reasons we reject that? Well, one of the main reasons is is the garden tomb has already been investigated by archaeologists, and it is very well known. It's been pretty well established that the garden tomb was at least six hundred years old when Christ died. Wow! So obviously, that's a problem because you know we read the Gospels that Jesus was laid in a newly cut tomb. Newly cut tomb, yeah. So it can't be the garden tomb because it was too old. Wow. Well, that serves as an excellent segue to the next topic of discussion, which is, to be honest, I love this next topic. I, I have loved it for quite some time. And um, and we are talking about perhaps something that's even more controversial than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But if it is, if it is true as to what we think that it is, it could very well be the most important archaeological find of all time. And we are, of course, talking about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, Ted, explain to our listeners, uh, what is the Shroud of Turin? Well, it's a 
it's a large piece of cloth that's actually linen, and um, it's uh, it's one piece. So imagine like a, a circular type. What's it's kind of hard to explain, uh, you know, just, just using words because, like I said, you know, the picture's worth a thousand words, so I can try to explain it. But it's basically it's sewn together. So imagine imagine a really long sheet or a tablecloth that's you pick it up and, and you sew the ends together end to end long ways. And uh, that maybe sort of makes a picture or maybe a large sheet that's sewn end to end. It, it serves maybe like a donut shape so that there's like a kind of a hole in the middle. And so the body would have been, would have been placed, it, you know, it would have been placed around the body and it's linen. And uh, it was uh, first identified or at least it, it, it shows up in the historical record at about the 1400s um, time frame. And uh, so one of the, the controversial thing about this, well, there are a lot of controversial things about it, but one of the most controversial things is um, trying to trace it back to where it originally came from. So obviously, if it's if it's legitimately the burial cloth of Christ, then it's going to be traced back to Jerusalem in the garden. I mean, obviously in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But archaeologically or historically, we first encounter it in about the 1400s. And so there's really no way to, to, to know, you know, where how to get there, and it was in Italy, and maybe there's some evidence that came from here and there. But uh, back in the 70s, uh, there was some uh, extensive research done on it called STURP, uh, S-T-U-R-P, and uh, there were a lot of people involved in this uh, research because obviously it's, if it, obviously it's the burial cloth of Christ, it's going to be one of the most holiest, uh, the holiest uh, relic or the holiest uh, artifact in all of Christendom. And so uh, it is believed to be, and that's just to kind of go back, it's believed to be the burial shroud of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead by, by a lot of people. Um, and I will say this, let me just, this is kind of a general uh, observation, not just about the shroud, but about archaeology in general. Um, archaeology is not like, um, and again, it's not to say that it's not scientific, and it's not, you know, you can't put your trust in it, but it's not like, um, not like logic or math uh, in the sense that it's going to give you an absolute certainty where you're going to have 100% certainty that this or that is true. But what archaeology gives us when you, when you do the research, it gives you probability. So you have a very high degree of probability or a, or a uh, you know, very low degree of probability uh, based on research and based on the evidence. So in other words, you would never have really a zero or a 100. You'd have one through 99. Absolutely. What's interesting, Brian, is that since the since the original uh, Sturt research that was done in the 1970s, um, the evidence has actually piled up that it very well may be uh, a legitimate uh, thing. But again, there's no way to know. So, just to kind of kind of maybe a segue into the next where we talk about the shroud a little bit, we're going to talk about some maybe some some of the scientific stuff behind it. But one of the most interesting things um, is the fact that uh, uh, the shroud itself um, is not a painting. It, it, that's one of the things that they do. And, and I learned this through, you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about, uh, I was on the History Channel CNN, or CNN thing. And uh, so it, on CNN, one of the things we talked about was the shroud. And uh, in my research for CNN, I actually 
contacted Gary Habermas, and I'm not sure if you've ever had him on the show, but Gary has done extensive talks on the, on the Shroud. I haven't, but I would love to. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to be envious, but I am so envious right now. <laughs> Because you would think that 
you know, well, what can we prove about it? What what does it say? Well, that's kind of what science does. You know, we, we try to eliminate, we, I guess we play the skeptic and we say, well, it's not this, it's not this, it's not that. So that leaves you with a very limited uh, options as to what it actually could be. So, so if you don't mind, um, what I'll do is I will uh, actually read through a few things here from Zugby. Absolutely. So, I, I, tell, I tell you, Ted, if you don't mind, before we do that, uh, th- th- there's there's a question that our listeners probably would uh, would, would want to know because this this would be something that would I think be a big determining factor as as to, as to what would go into that question and that would come to the 1988 dating of the shroud and uh, I remember seeing this come across the news screen. That uh, I mean, because here you see this image of this crucified man, arms crossed. Uh, you see the front and you see the back. But this dating in 1988 seemed to posit that this was a medieval forgery in the 1500s. What evidence before before we look at the options? What evidence do we have that demonstrates that that testing was fallacious? Yeah, because obviously carbon dating is going to give you a plus or minus range. And so, um, so yeah, there was a very controversial thing when it came out. And so people today, they, they look at that date and they go, well, you know, the shroud was uh, that, that, that pretty much solves it. And that's it. The problem, though, is that when uh, the shroud itself was actually uh, stored in a lead box and there was a cathedral or church fire with one of the churches that it was stored in. And uh, some of the lead melted on the side and singed the side of the shroud. And uh, there was uh, there were nuns who actually repaired the shroud. So the part that was actually carbon dated uh, was the part that was repaired by the nuns. So it was not the original uh, cloth of the shroud itself. They were able to uh, sew back into the thread or threading the original threading of the original cloth itself to make it look uh, seamless. So the part that was taken and dated was the part that was repaired by the nuns after the fire. So, so that's so, why it was incorrect. So we need to take the 1988 well, dating for, for the skeptic. Right, and, but it actually, uh, it actually proves that the part that was repaired based on that time frame, which is what, you, which is what we would expect. So that would throw out that, that entire dating process since they had the wrong, really the wrong thread. Yes, correct. Okay. So now you were talking about some options about what the the shroud is not. Uh, yeah. So just a few of these, um, and I'll stop it. There's, there's a lot of them um, from from Zugby. Uh, let's see here. These are very uh, very specific um, specific things that we can actually uh, prove pretty pretty you know pretty solidly through science. Uh, so the first one is extensive studies revealed. No evidence of human artifice, organic or inorganic paints, dyes, stains, or pigments of any kind. The shroud's image has not been painted with any known beetles and pigments. So that's a very important part, is that it's not a painting. And one of the things people would say, and people have tried to reproduce, in fact, I I think I saw a special where uh, somebody tried to reproduce this, and it's uh, it's not the same thing. So, so the actual shroud itself contain 
it's no paint or pigment of any kind. That that is a fact. Mm. Uh, number two, there were no cementing substances or binders between the fibers. This means that there were no paints or other agents that would be binding them together. Uh, Fourier analysis showed no evidence of directionality consistent with brush marks. Uh, Dr. Ray Rogers, a paralysis and explosives expert and original SCURP member, performed a paralysis mass spectrometry analysis to direct any evidence of impurities. He observed that organic and, for that matter, inorganic pigments would have affected, uh, have affected a change uh, in proportion of the image uh, during the Chambray fire, indicating that they would have changed color, decomposition, or volatized at different rates relative to the distance from high temperature zone. So, in other words, if, if it was painted and this thing was in the fire, then the, the heat from the fire would have affected the pigments of the paint. Wow. So, you know, he just basically you're just ruling out that it's a painting. Um, let me jump ahead. Uh, okay, this is another very interesting uh, thing, too. And in, an encoding of three, this, this is pretty cool, Brian. An encoding of three dimensional information was present in the image. The VP8 image analyzer not present in photos or paintings, all of which show distortion or flattening of relief, including the arm within the chest and those pressed to the face. In other words, there was a cloth-to-body distance relationship. So this cloth was actually on a body. This is, this is a, I mean, the, the level of complexity and three-dimensionality of this image uh, could have only be explained as it actually being on a body itself. So it's on a body for sure, and it's not made with paint. Those wow. two by themselves, to me, are pretty, uh, are pretty amazing. Wow. But uh, the, the next one is the shroud also, we can kind of continue with our theme here. The shroud displayed the light and dark characteristics in a way similar to a negative photographic image. Um, photography was obviously unknown in medieval times, so this light-dark reversal had not been seen in any artistic pieces or, uh, or earlier periods prior to the advent of photography. Uh, photography enabled precise anatomical characteristics and details not seen in the original shroud image. The presence of blood was detected in various, uh, various areas of the shroud and confirmed by Hiller and Adler by several tests for blood that are acceptable in a court of law, including microspectrophotometric micro scans of crystals and fibrils, uh, po uh, positive blood tests, positive hemochro uh, hemochromogen tests, reflected scans, positive tests for bile pigments, uh, characteristic of heme, and uh, porphyrin fluorescence. So basically all these big words to say that uh, these contain real, actual human blood. Also, another interesting thing, Brian, the shroud contains pollens uh, from over 38 plants from Palestine and surrounding areas identified uh, by botanical uh, experts in the Holy Land. So, in addition, if the shroud image was an original artistic forgery, some of the original observed pollens would have shown traces of paints, pigments, and dyes. Um, and so there were no binders present on the pollens. Um, the accuracy of medical information in regard to the wounds and the presence of rigor mortis, blood flow patterns, blood with serum, uh, albumin halo suggests authenticity. And so, um, and then also the textile evidence, uh, the actual, uh, the actual cloth itself, the text, the textile, uh, textile evidence in support of first century weaving, including that of Dr. John Tyrer a well-respected textile technologist from Manchester College of Technology and Textile Institute, 
who indicated that the Z-twist yarns and three-to-one reversing twill, similar to the Turin Shroud, uh, could have been produced in the first century Syria and Palestine. So in other words, this was a very high, um, uh, someone that, a piece of cloth that would have been owned by, by a wealthy person um, in the first century in Palestine. So something you would, something you would expect from someone like Joseph of Arimathea. Absolutely, certainly true, for sure. Uh, the shroud uh, also they found out too. What's interesting, Brian, is that in uh, in a, the archaeological site of Masada, uh, which I'm I'm sure you may have talked about that before in your podcast, Masada is located in the Dead Sea, and um, many people may be aware that uh, in this in the 78 AD when the uh, you know when the Romans came into Jerusalem, they sacked Jerusalem uh, for about a year or so after that. The Jews uh, continue to rebel. The last holdout were the ones who went and, and went to Masada. They, anyway, they committed a mass suicide uh, on the top of Masada before the Romans came up and uh, finally besieged and broke through the walls of the actual city itself, or the, uh, the fortress. And uh, so in the 1970s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, an archaeologist by the name, Israeli archaeologist, by the name of Yigal Yadin, uh, excavated Masada. And what he did, because of where it is in the Dead Sea, was able to locate a lot of organic material, including human hair uh, they, uh, from the people who committed suicide in Masada, as well as cloth, a very, very well-preserved. In fact, one of the things that was preserved was actually uh, 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 dates, and uh, like like raisins, dates, things like that. They were actually preserved. They were just dehydrated, and they put water on them, and you could actually still eat them. That's how amazingly 2,000 years old. So, uh, so all that to say that uh, the shroud closely compared with the Masada cloths dating them about AD 73, they were composed of fine, highly quali- high quality linen with a Z twist and three to one herringbone pattern and selvage revealing an unusual manner of stitching, both at the joining seam and hems that appeared to be almost invisible. Uh, Professor Entrano Morano, director of the Center of Electron Mi- Microscopy, uh, studied fibers in the shroud and compared them with fibers in the Egyptian linen more than 2,000 years old using a scanning electron microscope. And uh, the investigation revealed a, an extraordinarily high similarity of the surfaces of the Egyptian linen. So exact date beyond 2,000 years. So he also found uh, pollens between the fibers of both linen, some of which appear similar. So the pollen, and then also on the feet, well, near, near where the feet are located on the shroud. Obviously, this would have been the feet of purportedly Jesus, and he, the Bible tells us that he carried his own cross, and uh, obviously, you know, his feet, are, he's barefooted, and so uh, so in the, in the foot area of the shroud, they have actually picked up limestone, and pieces of limestone, and it can be identified with the quarry uh, near Jerusalem in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So, wow. I mean, everything is just pretty much lining up. So these, these so two things... It's not, a, it's not a painting, uh, and it's not, uh, it's not been tampered with, and all these other evidences uh, certainly place it uh, as a very authentic uh, piece, of, uh, piece of artifact. But that's amazing to think about because as we were talking about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and they find limestone that matches that that's found in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I mean, this, this well, really... Yeah, well, not, let me clarify. Not necessarily in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre itself, but... Uh, in the limestone surrounding Jerusalem. Right, right. Uh, it has a chemical, it does have a chemical um, 
uh, profile in which scholars can, uh, you know, chemists and geologists can, can identify because obviously it's a, it's an organic material. Limestone was, uh, you know, was instead of, was basically, uh, you know, these are these are uh, uh, microorganisms, and so you can you can pinpoint the limestone to Jerusalem. So so all of it sort of lines up, and you, you, know, you take the fact that it's it's not a painting. How did the image get there? And um, I remember Gary saying a couple of years ago at one of the conferences we were speaking at, and I'm not, I haven't, I haven't confirmed this, and I saw that I haven't traced down the original source, but he mentioned uh, that that radiation could be obviously some form of radiation of some type uh, could have formed the image on the shroud. I mean, obviously we don't know we don't know what formed the image, but it's it's possible that it could be radiation, and uh, we know that there's X-ray and gamma radiation that are two of the most powerful forms of radiation. Um, in the known universe, obviously, when people get an X-ray, uh, it looks through their body. But, but so here's the question: um, Can a human body emit very, very high amounts of radiation? It can. But the problem is, is that uh, radiation therapy. You know, obviously, people who get cancer, they get radiation therapy, chemotherapy, things like that. Uh, there have been some instances in which. Um, a hand of a, of a person who is deceased that had chemotherapy, of the image of the hand because of the high radiation would be on the sheet. But the body of the trout image also, I, I failed to mention this as well, um, it is, uh, it's, it's almost like a perfect x-ray. And through the, through the infrared photography of it, you can actually see, there's a couple other little fine details on the image of the shroud that a forger would not have known about in the 1400s. And one of them was the actual um, uh, these these medial tendons in the hand itself. So if you if someone gets on the computer and Google's an image of the shroud and they look at the hands of the person on the shroud, they'll notice that the fingers look very very long and that there are no thumbs. The thumb, the thumbs don't seem to be present. So when Jesus was crucified or when crucifixion happened, uh, we're we're pretty positive based on some other tests that have been done. That the nails would have went in the very lower part of the wrist, or the right, right below the palm of the hand and wrist area, and this would have allowed the, uh, the the victim who was crucified to be hung on the on the cross itself. So the image in the shroud has the nail marks exactly that spot, but when you put a nail through that part of the uh, of the wrist, it actually punctures the medial tendon in the thumb. So the thumb actually. Uh, protracts inside the hand. So this person was likely, very likely, very high degree of probability was crucified and hung on these wounds by nails. Mm. So, uh, and then there's blood in the in those uh, marks as well uh, on the image of the shroud. So, uh, so pretty amazing. And then through the beard itself, there's actually uh, you can see the teeth. So it's oh, in the hands. We go back to the hands as well. The reason why the fingers look so long is because the image, whenever and however it was made, actually imprinted the bones inside the hand. So the when you look at an X-ray of a hand, you know you I mean you see your fingers if you just look at your hand, but those bones continue to go up through the palm of your hand. So if you look at an X-ray, it looks like your fingers are long. So the image is like an X-ray. It's pretty remarkable. Wow, unbelievable. So, so we have we've already verified it's not a painting. We, we verified that uh, there are there are traces of uh, flower fragments, particles that uh, are found to 
the, the to the Jerusalem area, limestone that matches that found in the area. Uh, one one quick question is we have about uh, about four or five minutes. Do we have historical uh, data that that pinpoints the shroud itself to to the to the area to the Jerusalem area? Is there can it be can the history be traced to some degree uh, back to uh, the first century? source, you know, being the linen from Egypt, and then also uh, from Masada as well, those seem to argue, and then the Jerusalem, obviously, the limestone as well, uh, but as far as, I think I, I think I get it, what you're, what you're asking. You're more like the historical um, record of, of some, some sort. Correct. Yeah. And we don't have, there is another uh, very interesting uh, piece of uh, archaeological evidence, it's called the, the napkin of Oviedo, and uh, this would have been the the towel or the cloth in which was actually Jesus actually wiped his face, and the blood stains on that uh, matched the image of the blood stains on the shroud itself. So it looks like this same person on the shroud was on the image of Oviedo. It's in Spain. So to answer your question, uh, we do know, uh, we're pretty sure that the that uh, we have a a better record of where that came from, and that has a better track record of actually tracing it back to the Holy Land. So, uh, so if we can sort of piggyback, it, it's very possible that the shroud may have taken the same route. So, obviously, if, if it originated in Jerusalem, uh, the, the Christians would have taken that up and kept it. We're assuming and kept it in safekeeping for some time until it appeared in Europe somewhere. Um, you know, which is where relics were being uh, spread around. So the problem is, there's really no way to tell if these relics are true or not. There were some that were true, some that were not. There's really no way to know for sure. Uh, but this one it seems to be uh, a much more more powerful uh, relic and artifact. And one of the things we talk about. And you get, let me just let me just say this, and then we're about to close up. I got a couple points I want to make about the shroud and in the authenticity. Um, so in archaeology, we. Uh, one of the things that, that we talk about in archaeology is something called provenance. It, it's, it's a big fancy word that just, it just means context. And ideally, we want to find an artifact in the context, or what we call in situ, or which is a Latin phrase which means in place. We want to find it uh, as it's actually being taken out of the ground. Now, when we find artifacts and we don't know where they came from, that's called a non-provenanced artifact. But... Uh, through uh, other research and through uh, you know uh, analysis, through scientific analysis, chemistry or whatever, uh, maybe paleography or some type of other sciences that we can apply to the artifact, uh, we can still establish the authenticity of that artifact that we just can't know for absolutely sure where it came from. And there are some famous non-provenance artifacts out there that uh, we are pretty sure where they came from. The, the danger is, is that you know, people that the black market antiquities now is a big hot item and ISIS is using them to fund terrorism. So we don't want people taking things out of context. We want them to be excavated by an archaeologist where they can actually be studied from, from the original context. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the original Dead Sea Scrolls were not discovered in the caves of Qumran. They were actually bought in an antiquities market in Jordan. Mm. So, so just because we don't know exactly where it came from doesn't mean that it's not authentic. Um, 
but but uh, so it, it, you know, obviously, other research uh, shows that it could be authentic as well. But I would say, Brian, and let me just—I know we're going to wrap things up here. And if, if you don't mind, I don't know if you had any other questions, but I had one final point I wanted to make about that. Oh yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, people people say all the time, and we have a lot of. Uh, I was at a conference uh, a few weeks ago, and. Uh, in Chicago, and you know, I, I, I had a little handout that I gave people of the top ten archaeological discoveries in the New Testament, and a lot of these. Um, I mean, we, even if you don't have the shroud, if we don't have the shroud, we have got uh, a amazing amount of evidence archaeologically, historically, textually uh, that the gospel accounts are true. Internally, internal evidence from the gospels themselves, and also externally through archaeological evidence. Just a few of these. You know, the Caiaphas ossuary I mentioned earlier, the Pontius Pilate description, we found the Pool of Siloam, uh, which dates back to the Old Testament. That was found in 2004 in Jerusalem when workers were trying to install a nearby sewer line. Uh, we have the synagogue at Capernaum, which we know Jesus actually spoke at that place. We have an, another very interesting artifact, the Nazareth inscription. It's a non-provenance artifact, but... Uh, it was it was found in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. It was an edict from Rome itself, uh, threatening death or tampering with tombs, not taking bodies from tombs. But why in the world would the Roman emperor uh, demand people not take bodies from tombs, and why would he put it in Jesus' hometown? So the Nazareth inscription is another amazing artifact that argues for the authenticity of the resurrection. Uh, and then also, obviously, we have some other artifacts as well. But we have a lot of uh, historical and archaeological evidence that the resurrection is actually true. But let me close with this. And one of the questions that we, we talked about at the Conference of Chicago, someone, uh, the guy, my, my colleague there in Defenders Media, Kurt Jaros, uh, we did a podcast there in, in Chicago. And he, 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 we, one of the questions was, he said, Ted, what, what? If there's one archaeological artifact that would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christianity is true, you know, what would it be? And I said, there's not one, Kurt. There's not one archaeological or even 10 or 12 archaeological artifacts that would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the resurrection is true. Now, they can support the historical reliability of the text. There's no way to absolutely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, that the resurrection is true just from the artifacts. Because there's always going to be people who don't that the it's not the evidence the evidence is there there's powerful evidence, but the evidence alone is not going to convince the hardened skeptic. In in Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and uh, you remember the story. You, I know you're a pastor, so you know the story very well. And in the story, the rich man he goes into Hades, and uh, he he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers not to come to the horrible place of Hades. And two times, I think actually I think it's three times he says that he says the first time he says they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. Mm -hmm. And he says he says no. He says if you would just send Lazarus back from the dead, then then surely my brothers would believe and not come to this horrible place. And he finally in, he ends up saying. He says, they would not believe though a man rise from the dead. He goes, no matter what evidence, if a man rises from the dead, comes back out of the grave to warn not to come to the place of Hades, there will still be people who will not believe because it's not, the issue is not evidence, the issue is the heart. Yeah. And so, uh, but evidence can certainly support faith, absolutely for sure. In fact, I'm a firm believer in that uh, apologetically, that archaeological, philosophical evidence 
certainly very, very strongly supports the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. But, uh, but the evidence has to be joined with faith because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Amen. Well, Brother Ted, we're going to have to end there. Uh, this has been a fantastic podcast. And as Ted has, has told us, you know, the evidence is there, but ultimately it comes down to a matter of faith. And so you've heard the evidence. The evidence is there. And so you have to make that faith commitment. And we encourage you to do just that. Uh, we do encourage you also to go and check out Ted's uh, new site that has just launched by the time this podcast airs at epicarchaeology.org. For Ted Wright, this is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. The Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights are reserved. The views expressed by guests on the podcast are of those expressing them and may not represent those of the host Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The theme played on the podcast is the song Epic and is produced royalty-free by Bensound Studios, found at bensound.com. Visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe by entering your email to receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox absolutely free. This podcast can also be found on several podcatchers, including iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We thank you for joining us today. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. Thank you.